Welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Tammy Walker to the show. Dr. Walker is an Associate Professor of Law and Psychology at the University of Arizona. She received her PhD in psychology from the University of Virginia and a JD from Columbia Law School. Dr. Walker is also the director and principal investigator for the Walker Lab. The College of Education at the University of Arizona offers an MA in educational psychology and an EDS and doctoral program in school psychology. In addition, the College of Science offers multiple doctoral programs, including those in clinical psychology, cognition and neural systems, and social psychology. Dr. Walker, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so very much for having me. Happy to be here. I am excited to talk to you. The stuff that we've uh, found out about you even before we started recording here is magnificent. I'm excited to uh, share some of your experiences with everybody on the uh, podcast. Um, Before we get started, just tell us a little bit more about yourself. So I am originally from Bryan College Station, Texas. I went to Texas A&M for undergrad. And so I feel like that's one thing that you should know about me that defines a lot about my decisions thereafter, because my parents told me that if I went to college in my hometown, that I could go wherever I wanted to for graduate school, and there could be no discussion about whatever I picked. So um, I uh, stayed in my hometown. I um, basically grew up in the same house my entire life, but I kind of have a a bit of a a wanderer spirit and a lot of wanderlust. And so... Um, that's why I chose, I, my subsequent decisions meant that I chose the most different, different places possible and kind of varied experiences to try to, in my mind, make up for the fact that, you know, I didn't get to do very much before, um, the end of college. Well, it definitely shows in, in your Vita where you actually attended school and we're going to get into that a little bit, uh, later on as well. And, you know, one thing that, um, I wanted to highlight, first of all, I kind of go in chronological order whenever I do these interviews, kind of talk about your undergraduate, graduate, and then how you made those decisions. So unlike others who have studied psychology first, it appears you wanted to get your law degree first. At what point did you know that you wanted to get your law degree? So my parents actually met in our local courthouse in Brazos County. And my dad was a police officer. He was a detective. He was the first black detective in Brazos County in Texas. And my mom um, didn't work for the criminal justice system, but her office, she was a county extension agent and her office was located at the courthouse. And as a kid, I spent a lot of time sort of around the courthouse hanging out. And um, I uh, kind of was, I got to watch trials. I may or may not have watched a few death penalty trials um, when I was like eight or nine. Um, So I I was always kind of intrigued by it. Um, But one of the good things about growing up in a college town is I had a lot of opportunity to kind of be on campus and try to um, try my hand at a lot of different things. And so I tried a number of things. My oddest job was probably um, I worked at a forestry science lab picking seeds out of pine cones one summer um, when I was like 13 or 14. all that to say that I tried and I kind of dabbled. I had a, a, the ability and sort of the aptitude to do a lot of things, but I didn't really know what interests me. And so I tried as much as many things as I could possibly um, try. And after 
high school, the, the thing that kind of got me thinking, okay, maybe law school is a thing is I volunteered at my local courthouse um, where my parents basically worked for a local judge there. And my job essentially was to help her go through all her files, um, were all paperback then, and to uh, basically hand her a law book if she needed one, all of these kind of things. And the thing that stood out to the most to me about that experience was how much the law impacts people's lives when they have no idea what's going on around them. And it was kind of scary to me. So I saw, for example, defense attorneys who just met their clients a few seconds before and were kind of like shuffling through the files to figure out what was going on in the case in order to make a recommendation. And I thought to myself, oh my God, number one, I don't ever want to be in that position. I don't ever want to be in the position of you know, having such somebody else make these huge decisions about my life and me not have anything or um, really not be able to understand what's going on. But then also I thought, you know, I want to be the person who can sit down with that person and, and explain everything and help them through the process. Um, that was my kind of like 17, 18 year old brain thinking about that. So that was really my first idea or inkling that I might want to go to law school. That you brought up so many things I want to ask. First of all, pine cones. I don't understand why you were taking the seeds. I don't want to highlight that, but that's interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, uh, the reason to talk about it just because that was sort of like um, it was a program to try to get more women in STEM. And okay. so I worked with uh, a lot of female scientists in a forestry science lab, and they were genetically engineering loblily pine trees. Wow. And the DNA is in the seeds. And so what, what I learned from that experience was I don't have the patience to um, do experiments that last 10 years for you to be able to figure out the results. And right. like, sure enough, 10 years later, they called me and they're like, oh, hey, you know, like this, <laughs> you know. This is what happened. And, um, you know, I, I was like, no, that's not for me. Not not that kind of long trajectory as far as that's concerned. Right. No, that's interesting. Now, I, a lot of our audience may ask, how did you end up choosing to go to Columbia Law School versus some other schools? So, um, uh, so my undergraduate major was in marketing. And uh, I, I say that to me that I didn't really know what I wanted to do after undergraduate. I just knew I wanted to get out of Texas to have a different experience. And um, I didn't really know like job wise what I wanted to do. I thought it would be better to go to graduate school. And that's kind of was my plan from the very beginning. Um, and as I said, the deal with my parents, I'm an only child, the deal with my parents was I get to pick wherever I want to go and there can be no discussion about it. And so in my brain at the time, I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to leave the state, I'm going to try to find a law school to go to that is that are ranked higher that than the law schools that are the highest ranked law schools in my state. So I think at the time, the University of Texas was like 15. So I just applied to like 11 schools above the University of Texas. I was like, okay, I'll just do all of these. <laughs> and um, from there, I got into, you know, basically a good number of them and decided, all right, well, what is it that I want out of this experience? What, what kind of um, uh, life do I want to be leading for the next three years? And kind of what can this experience get me that I haven't already had? So I'd gotten into like Duke and the University of Chicago and schools like that, but I had never lived in a city. I remember the first time that I ever saw skyscrapers and, you know, like I kind of, I'd never taken public transportation. I'd never been north of Maryland when I applied to all of these schools. 
when I applied to both NYU and Columbia. And uh, I just decided, you know, well, let me just try at the, at the very beginning. Um, some of the schools that I applied to, I had a good friend who was a superstar. And um, because she was a superstar, she had so much more knowledge than I did. I didn't realize that if schools really wanted you to come, that they would pay for you to pay for your application fees or pay for you to be able to visit. And I was kind of like, that, that sounds you know, like icky to me. That doesn't sound right. But she was like, no, 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 you can do it. And uh, I said, okay, well, I don't know about where I, I don't know where I want to go. I've applied to places I've never been before. Kind of the deciding factor for me was, well, okay, I'm just going to ask Columbia if they'll pay for my ticket to go to New York City and see what they say. Because if they say no, then I'll be like, all right, it's fine. I don't need to go there. Um, and they did. And then I was oh. like, oh, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was like, oh, no, I'm going to have to go. That's hmm, all right. Okay. And, uh, you know, I had a friend who said that she'd been in New York City before. She had relatives there. She was going to go with me because I really just did not have any clue. Um, but at the last minute, she wasn't able to go. And um, so I flew to New York City for Admitted Students Day, Columbia, NYU, have Admitted Students Day around the same time. Um, they don't come get you at the airport. It's nothing like that. So I landed in LaGuardia. The only way that I knew to get to the apartment where I was staying with a student was because um, it was the restaurant, the, the corner is the restaurant that's in Seinfeld. And so I was basically like, can you take me to this block where this restaurant is? And uh, you know, that's how I made it there, essentially. Um, I'd never been on public transportation before, never been on a subway, rode the subway that, um, that admitted students day weekend. And um, ultimately I uh, found out about Columbia in terms of really the city of New York is what I wanted to try, but also Columbia had three years of guaranteed housing. So after my visit at NYU, when they said they only had one year of guaranteed housing, I was like, okay, thank you. That's all I need to know. Um, and essentially I decided if I'm ever gonna live in a city, I'm gonna pick the biggest one. And uh, cause the other thing is I also had never seen snow. And so people told me, and I'd never been to Chicago. And so people said, well, let the, let the wind hit you off the lake. And I was like, I can't do that. So, so I chose New York City as my first experience to kind of deal with the snow and being in the Northeast. And um, I had a blast. It was kind of like being on vacation every day. It sounds like you had a lot of uh, firsts, a lot mm -hmm. of first experiences there. And I'm glad that you were able to experience that. I grew up in the Midwest, used to the snow, used to the wind, used to piles and piles public transit. Uh, uh, but it, it's funny that you you found the place simply because of the Seinfeld corner. That's kind of interesting. Yes. Yeah. And I will say that, you know, um, uh, so most people that go to Texas A&M are from Houston or Dallas or Austin. And so they're from larger cities. And so I, I was kind of like a townie. And so even my friends from Houston and Dallas were like, I, I don't think that's a good idea. So actually, nobody really thought it was a good idea for me to go to New York City to go to Columbia. I mean, I had had some experiences that kind of convinced me that, you know, it wasn't going to be a problem and I could handle it. Um, and uh, so I was like, you know, whatever. I, I was kind of bound and determined and no one could talk me out of it, essentially. And so I, I moved there by myself. A friend of mine very kindly used her free ticket that she had to help me move. We were it was like the blind leading the blind. Um, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. 
And you almost committed yourself as soon as you asked that question, will you pay for my ticket? Then that started everything. <laughs> it did. It did. And the other experience, you know, especially people from rural areas was studying abroad. Studying abroad was the experience that kind of got me to have the confidence that I could do something like that. But also, um, the, I think it was at least 40%, if not more, of the people who were admitted to Columbia Law School had, had studied abroad. Okay. So it's not an insignificant thing. Well, you shared a lot of good information for our audience. Uh, I wouldn't have even thought of um, people. I know people try to um, bring in the top contenders, so to speak, um, and they'll do almost anything. But it's interesting that they were willing to do that for you. And I noticed that you had um, some time between finishing uh, at Columbia Law School and then uh, eventually going over to London yes. uh, to work on your Master of Science. What did you do in between the two before we start talking about uh, your London, England experience? Um, a few things. So, um, so as I said, I, I studied abroad in undergrad and I had a good experience doing that. And um, the... Uh, not most people, but many people after graduating from law school decide what they want to do is to clerk for a federal judge. And um, I'm sort of not one of those people who is a resume or CV filler. I'll kind of talk about that later. I kind of accidentally did what you need to do in order to get these jobs. But um, I needed to have a good reason to apply. And my good reason for wanting to apply for a clerkship with a federal judge was that it was the only opportunity that you would have to really kind of see behind the scenes with juries and to kind of uh, figure out how the process works in terms of being able to talk to people who are on juries. And so once I kind of had that in my head, I applied to places all over the country. But um, ultimately, the first person who offered me a job was ju just Judge Gerald Bruce Lee in Alexandria. And I said, I accept. And he was kind of like, well, don't you want to wait? And I was like, no, no, this is good. I'll take this. This works for me. So um, <laughs> I did that. But um, the way the clerkship application process works is you kind of have to do it a little bit uh, in advance. So I essentially had um, a, a year between the time that I graduated from law school and the time when I was supposed to start my clerkship. And so I had a choice between working at law firms or uh, after I studied for the, the bar, essentially. So I would have had to have started working at a law firm, quit, and then go work for um, the judge. Or uh, I could go to Spain and study abroad uh, again. So I chose the go to Spain and study abroad option. So I spent about four and a half months in Seville um, kind of practicing my Spanish. And then I also kind of did some things, volunteering for some judges and studying for the bar, that kind of thing. And um, after uh, my clerkship, I ended up uh, staying in the DC area and I worked for two different law firms. And that's kind of what I was doing when I ultimately decided that I wanted to um, quit that job and go to London. You, you bounced all over the place. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, that's good. Um, I, I like the fact that um, you kind of said you're not a CV filler. Mm -hmm. uh, but you ended up doing the stuff that was needed uh, to get done in order to get some of these positions as well. Mm -hmm. um, for those of us who aren't familiar with the judicial system and clerkship, can you explain some of the typical responsibilities that you had uh, when you were a clerk? Sure. So being a clerk for the federal court system is kind of analogous to what you might think of like a medical student and a resident. Okay. Um, you, it, it, it's really training. 
And they most often are sort of temporary positions that last about a year or two years. And your job is to essentially be the judge's assistant. So you do all of the research, you may um, help with drafts of opinions, um, all of those types of things are the things that you would do when we're working for a judge. I accidentally ended up in a courthouse that is called the rocket docket. So it is the fastest courthouse in the country. I did not know this um, at the time. And it is the courthouse where a lot of the terrorist cases are tried. And so the judge that I clerked for at the time was the least senior judge, which meant that he didn't get the opportunity to deny, like he couldn't like reject any cases. So it was the busiest year he ever had before or since. And he had uh, two trials going on at the same time twice, for example, in the year where I clerked there. So in terms of asking me like what I did when I was there, literally just tried to stay afloat, try, try to stay ahead of the game. <laughs> Um, you know, try not to work on Saturdays, but mostly it was doing a lot of research. And um, what I really liked about it and what's kind of similar to what we do in psychology is I really loved uh, having to get to learn things really sort of in depth in a short period of time and then forgetting it. And, and that's kind of what this, this was in, in, in many different ways because there were so many different types of cases. And in, in the law, it, particularly in federal courts, is very kind of geographic. And Alexandria is the geographical region where I worked. Well, in that region, you have the FBI, you have the CIA, you have Dulles Airport, you have the Pentagon. So the types of cases that we got were just um, all over the place. And it was a good experience as far as I'm concerned. It's almost like, and, and excuse the pun, I, I just thought of it. It's almost like trial by fire. They threw oh, you is. in and you, you learned a lot. And then you forget it because you have to focus on other things. You can't right. retain That's that memory right. for long term. So yeah. So I used to be an expert on night vision goggles, not anymore. <laughs> you know. <laughs> at the time you were. At the time yeah. you were. Like, okay, I got it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how did you find the opportunity to study abroad over in London? I mean, uh, you said you went there, but how did you uncover that opportunity? Well, so. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about working at the law firm. It kind of leads into the, the London discussion, which is to say that um, working at a law firm, you bill in six minute increments. And so uh, that's how you bill clients. It's how you keep account of your time. And I found myself um, working at law firms, kind of watching the clock go down and watching it tick. Because um, if you're there until like after six, then you can like order a car, you can order food, you know, like you've kind of done what you need to do for the day to try to get things done. And um, I realized sitting there that I had worked really hard towards something that I didn't like. Mm -hmm. And I, I had to sit there and think about how it was that I got there. And I realized that um, I had never thought about how I wanted to spend my day. I'd never thought about, you know, what I actually wanted to do because I was good at things. I thought, okay, well, this is what I should do. Or people would say, oh, well, you're really good at that. This is what you should do. Um, my major in undergrad, it's not that I didn't like it, but, um, and I'm not a first generation college student. My parents were both kind of like, look, you need to get a job when you graduate. Like the purpose of going to college is to get a job. So you need a skill. So um, the funny thing is my college roommate and one of my good friends, we're still good friends today, but they were both psychology majors and they were calling me asking them, what are you going to do with that? I mean, like, that's not, you know, what are you going to do? Like, you don't really know anything. Um, so uh, all that to say that 
I uh, started seeing a, a therapist and in particular, a career counselor. And these were kind of the questions that she had me ask myself. And what I realized was that there are some things that I really liked about this job, but other things that I really didn't like. And, um, and I needed to make a change. And I'm kind of a person who jumps in the deep end, right? And so um, I figured, okay, well, what I discovered about myself was were things like I love project-based work, right? Like I love to work on multiple different products at the same time. I really like talking about things that really interest me and sharing them with other people. And I also really like um, trying to ask questions and figuring out the answers to them. And so there are a lot of things that are like that in the law, but basically every therapist I saw said, you know, you kind of sound like an academic to me. <laughs> and, I said, <laughs> and, and even though I grew up in a college town, my parents were academics, but I, I knew a lot of academics for whatever reason, it just never occurred to me that that would be something that I could do. And so, um, I needed to figure out a quick way to figure out whether this was something that was in my wheelhouse and that I would like. And um, I chose psychology simply because the areas of the law that I liked um, and that I thought I might want to write about were kind of more related to kind of social science related things. And I didn't want to write about them without knowing anything about them. Mm -hmm. I, I got the idea of going to England because they had a year long master's program. And I thought, hmm, you know, I, I didn't, I had like one class in psychology in undergrad. Um, if I would have gone to a master's program in the United States, I would have had to pay for it. Not, there are not many master's in psychology programs that are free. And so that would have been two years of a master's program that I'd pay for. And I thought, all right, well, but I can pay for a year in England, you know, see if I like it also be in England and uh, see how it goes. So I basically quit my job um, got admitted and left for England probably within like seven, eight weeks, something like that. Wow. Wow. You didn't, you didn't try to pull the stunt. Hey, would you pay for my plane over there? My plane ride over there? No, <laughs> yeah, <didn't> try that <laughs> that time. no so, you know, when you were looking at it, I, I, a couple things came to mind during mm -hmm. that uh, discussion. Thank you for sharing. Number one was, it was insightful advice on um, kind of reflecting, figuring out, even though I may be good at something, mm -hmm. is this really what I want to do for the rest of my life or for the next three, five, seven years? Mm -hmm. I like that advice. That's very good. A lot of people just get caught up in what they're doing and continue doing it. They don't have time to reflect. The other thing that I liked that you shared um, was hey, I could do this for a year. And if I like it, great. If not, you know, you compare it to what you would have experienced in the United States. And you're exactly right. Most of the master's uh, programs are two years. You're going to have to pay for it. You might as well travel and, and enjoy the world as well. Um, mm -hmm. So I liked, I liked uh, that story. Mm -hmm. Tell me some of the fondest experiences that you had while you were over there. Well, um, you know, I had traveled a bit. That was kind of my ambition um, to, was to travel, certainly when I, you know, left my parents' house and um, especially after being in New York, um, London wasn't really high on my list of places to go. I, I do like the sun like a lot and, and London is not very sunny, but my favorite part about being there is that essentially in the program that I did, um, the number of people from England, I think there were only like one or two, everybody else was from some other part in the world and all over the world. Um, Iceland, nice. Turkey, Germany, Bogota, um, and we're still friends. Like I went to Bogota a couple of years ago to um, visit with a friend that I met there. Mexico City, 
I um, went to a law society conference and I got to visit with one of my classmates from LSE um, in Mexico City. So that was probably my favorite thing. Um, it, but it, but um, the other thing that about that particular that program in particular, and I would say LSE as opposed to maybe like Cambridge, is that it, there wasn't really an emphasis on experiments. It was definitely more of an emphasis on theory. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, psychology as a discipline began in Germany. And so um, I, I do think now we kind of, because we're so you know, US-centric, we think of psychology as something that's you know, an, an American invention, or you know, we think of like US-centric ways of thinking about what we're gonna do in psychology. Um, but really it's a German, uh, you know, began with German scientists. And um, there are also a lot of French scientists. So that was the opportunity that I had um, in London was to kind of get a decent grounding in theory and um, the benefits of doing qualitative research, that sort of thing that I don't think you would get in the US. And, and that leads me up to my next question is in retrospect, now that you, and I'm going to talk about your PhD and going to, uh, you know, from the University of Virginia and where, how you got to where you are now, but in retrospect, now that you've gone through graduate school overseas and graduate schools in the United States, what were some of the differences or similarities or advantages and disadvantages of each one you already mentioned, uh, culturally diverse group of uh, students over there. And that's, that's fabulous. So I wouldn't have even guessed that you had a lot more, um, you know, foreigners attending that program than uh, natives. So um, tell me a little bit more about what you think are some of the differences between United States, you know, graduate schools and, and overseas over in London. So, um, you know, I can't really speak too much about uh, terminal master's programs because the schools that I attend don't ha- have don't have those. But um, I would say, yeah, definitely more emphasis on theories um, and, and, and in particular European um, theories in addition to the um, U.S. ones. I remember when I got to the University of Virginia, um, one of the professors said something about a theory and was saying, talking about it as if there was not a parallel in French psychology. And I was like, well, but they've also been to, like, you know, they're kind of parallel tracks. I'm like, interesting because this Serge Moscow VC also talks about this and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I would say uh, it is most people in Europe have um, like their college experience is more targeted Meaning that, you know, like our college experience, what we expect is you'd be able to try whatever you want. You can change your major multiple times. That's less true in Europe. And that means that your graduate experience is also even more targeted than you would expect here in the United States. So what I mean by that is, for example, applying for PhD programs in, um, in the UK. So I applied to the University of Edinburgh and got in. But the way you apply for that is you uh, write up what you want your dissertation to be. Mm-hmm. And um, you apply with your dissertation and then your um, time is basically spent just writing that dissertation. Whereas in the U.S., of course, you take at least two years of classes. You get to, you know, float around in labs, work on what your advisor is working on and then figure out, OK, this is what I'm going to propose. This is what I'm going to do for the, my dissertation. So it, there are some kind of um, major differences in terms of um, the orientation. And I also and I could be wrong, but I think that in terms of funding, and like doing research that the European government, um, like if you do health psychology, for example, they have a more sophisticated, they have a universal healthcare. So they have a, in some ways more built in methods for being able to collect data for certain populations. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I know that I, I, I told you before we started uh, on the show here that I, I traveled abroad as well. And I found that to be true as well when I was over there is that, uh, you know, the funding wasn't as big of a deal because it was available, you know, mm-hmm. depending on where you went and what you wanted to focus on. Mm-hmm. Um, I know some of our audience and I, one thing that occurred to me that I wasn't planning on asking is, did you find it difficult to apply to schools and um, them recognizing your master of science degree from abroad? Or was that no big deal? It was, oh, I see you got a master of science. That's great. Or how did that uh, you know, actually, play out? It actually wasn't a big deal. So I, I thought uh, it might've been a bigger deal had I gotten a PhD in the UK, and especially mm-hmm. if it was not from Cambridge or from Oxford right. um, or from Utrecht or Max Planck or something like that, right? Um, so I was more concerned about that. As far as the master's, um, no matter what PhD program you enter into, you're going to have to do their master's coursework anyway. Um, the one advantage or disadvantage, depending on how I look at it, for me having a master's degree was that it meant that I could teach earlier than um, other some of the other uh, graduate students in my class. Okay. No, good point. Thank you for sharing. Now, we already mentioned you received your PhD from the University of Virginia. How did you decide on going to UVA for your doctorate? So um, I applied to a number of places. I will, I will say that, um, you know, I didn't have a ton of experience in psychology. I did not, I was not a psychology major in undergrad. Um, the, uh, so, so as I mentioned, I really kind of wanted to get some experience in psychology. And what I found was that as somebody who had graduated from Columbia and somebody who'd been working at law firms, absolutely nobody was willing to have me in their labs as a grunt um, to, to work in a research lab and to, um, you know, I, I was like, I'll do it. It's fine. You know, you can order me around. Nobody was willing to let me do that. And so that's kind of also why one was a good idea, um, which meant that I didn't speak the language in the same way that people who had, uh, uh, been an undergrad in psychology, had mentors in psychology, and then applied to graduate school straight from undergrad. I didn't speak the same language that they did. So when I contacted um, people with whom I thought I might want to work, I found that we didn't speak the same language either, but also it was sort of like they didn't know what to do with somebody who was a lawyer. So I would say, for example, I would email somebody and I would say, oh, hi, I, you know, I see you have X, Y, or Z, you do X, Y, or Z research. I'm interested in that. I'm an attorney, blah, blah, blah. And they would say, oh, we don't have a clinical program where we do forensic psychology. And I'm like, but that's not what I said I wanted to do. Right. Right? Like, like I, I, I don't, I, I don't want to do forensic psychology, that kind of thing. So how I got to UVA was um, my advisor, Dick Percucci, had actually mentored at least five or 10 lawyers before I even got there. So he'd had multiple people who had previously been attorneys who he had mentored in PhD programs. So I kind of felt like he could meet me where I was and kind of helped me get where I wanted to go. How did you find out? You just, through digging, you just finding out that he uh, had done that? I mean, that's not really, you know, they don't have it on their website. They probably yeah. don't have it on their about page. So how did you find that out? And it is a good question because it's not, like he did, definitely did not have a website that had that on there. I think I kind of um, figured that out after talking to him. Mm-hmm. But um, I, um, uh the, so I, my area of concentration at UVA was the community psychology program, but really that's the law and psychology, um, you know, kind of combination at UVA because we don't have something that's basically just law and psychology. And so um, I was basically Dick's last student. His first student was Carol Dweck. And so uh, I say that to mean that 
he had a very long career where he did all kinds of things, um, clinical psychology, developmental psychology. And so I think in, in looking at his um, work in particular, what I liked was um, that lab specialized in um, children, family and the law, but a particular juvenile justice. And he wrote this essay about his father and um, his father's experience um, kind of being a juvenile delinquent and how that affected his life. And I loved that essay so much that I thought, you know what, this is somebody who I want to talk to and who I want to work with. That's great. I'm glad that you found, uh, found him and, and he was able to help you. Mm-hmm. The next uh, two questions kind of uh, relate to advice. And, and one of them is a little different because I wanted to ask you what were the most important factors for you when you were selecting graduate schools? Now, I understand what happened over in London, but coming back to the United States, what were the most important factors? Geography, the staff, uh, the type of research, they would recognize you, you, you know, you shared that story about, and I'm, and I'm a lawyer, it's almost would have been better in hindsight to not even mention that. Right. And then, yeah, then you probably would have got uh, better responses. So what were the most important factors for you when selecting graduate schools? Um, geography was among them just because I didn't want to be someplace that was expensive. So I'd applied to schools in New York and could kind of talk to them about whether I'd want to go there. And I was like, I can't have six roommates right? Like, I was like, that's not going to be for me. Um, I had already been living in Virginia and I also have relatives in Virginia and Charlottesville is just, you know, I had kind of see myself living there just because it's less expensive. It's a smaller um, town and it was kind of uh, less stress as far as that's concerned. So um, geography definitely had a lot to do with it. But um, the other part of it is, as I said, I kind of had given a lot of thought to what I wanted out of a program and kind of what I would bring to it and what I thought I might need and was really just um, kind of, um, for lack of a better word, very serious about expressing exactly who I am and what I know and what I can do or, you know, where I am to try to say like, look, this is it. There's not going to be any different than what you see right now. So can you, can you deal with this? Yes, no. Okay. Great. <laughs> you know, like, and, and that's, and that's a little bit about how um, Dick is. He's very, um, uh, very direct. You don't have to wonder where you stand with him. And um, if he doesn't like something, he's going to tell you. And I, I appreciated that very much. So. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, more and more um, during my interviews, more and more people are saying that transparency, that honesty, uh, and that guidance is, is really what helped them uh, get through some of their academic career as well Is mm-hmm. instead of just telling you what you think you want to hear mm-hmm. uh, and being real about it uh, really, really uh, goes a long way. Mm-hmm. One thing that I wanted to ask, and I know I asked this of everybody, what advice would you offer those seeking a master's or doctorate degree in psychology? It's a good question. I, I um, even working today with my colleagues, I have to say that it's just true that I'm a lawyer first in terms of like the way that I think about things. So it is difficult for me to just say, you know, anybody who's just thinking about doing psychology, what I would say, but um, what I kind of tell people who are, um, uh, you know, during recruitment weekends or things like that is to really give some thought to what you think you need in terms of the type of mentor that you need. Are you somebody who needs to have your handhold? Like, do you need somebody to give you actual real direction? If so, then you need to ask questions like, well, how many, how often do you have lab meetings, mm-hmm. right? Ask if you can sit in on a lab meeting. If this is somebody who doesn't have lab meetings at all, 
then that's probably not going to be the person for you, right? Like, um, uh, ask them about what they hope, what sort of grants they want to apply for. Like, it's it's more about thinking about things in terms of this is a finite period of your life, and you're going to have to, and it's going to go by way faster than you think it will be. You have to figure out how you're going to get out of it what you need so you can get to the next step. Very good advice. Um, I know that you also mentioned that, hey, be true to yourself, realize what you want to do. We talked about that before. Uh, after you received your doctorate, you were a visiting professor, I believe, at the professor of law at the University of Illinois College of Law. How did you end up there? So um, I decided uh, when I was getting finishing up my PhD at UVA that I wanted to apply for law school jobs as opposed to jobs in psychology. Mm -hmm. frankly, because uh, the money is way better for doing the same job. Mm -hmm. um, and also you, there's a less, there's less stress to have to deal with grants. I mean, I still apply for grants, but the culture of applying for, for grants in the law school is sort of nascent in a way that it is not in psychology. And um, the truth of the matter is um, there is a, I think it's called Prof's blog, but there's a blog that talks about legal academia and kind of keeps track every year of, um, who's hiring and who gets hired and kind of puts together some statistics. And among statistics um, uh, are things that like something like 85% of the people who got tenure track legal academic positions had gone to top five law schools, mm -hmm. had PhDs and uh, had fellowships um, and a clerk for a federal judge. So I had gone to a top five law school, I'd gotten a PhD, I clerked for a federal judge, and what I had, did not have was the fellowship. And so the University of Illinois, being a visiting assistant professor there, that was a two-year fellowship, essentially. It's interesting that you brought up some of those statistics and, and, and track that. I wouldn't have even thought about the impact. I would have thought the, you know, the difference in the, in the, uh, uh, in the salary would, would yeah. pop up. Um, but that's interesting that you brought that. And now you're at the University of Arizona. Yes. And so tell us how, um, how you got there. And I, I jotted down some few things and I'm going to share a screen while you answer the question, but what events and decisions, you know, led you to move from Illinois to, <laughs> to Arizona? Well, so um, as you kind of alluded to at the very beginning, I, once I left Texas, I was like, let me just try it all. Like I can live anywhere. I can do a whole bunch of things. Um, I, I liked living in Illinois. What I discovered about myself is I need the sunlight and the idea of spending, you know, uh, six months to eight months with no sunlight is not for me. Um, but one advantage I will say of having worked there in particular, um, especially being on the job market is that there are a lot of schools located in small towns or in rural areas or, you know, in, in let's say less desirable locations that are not like New York or LA that really don't believe people will want to go there. And the advantage for me is I have a demonstrative record of living in a lot of small town and being perfectly fine there. You know, so that enabled me when I was on the job market to be able to credibly and realistically speak to people at various universities and talk to them about how, yeah, I absolutely can live here. Nope, I've never been to, you know, I'd never been to Kentucky. I'd never been to Oklahoma, lots of places where I ended up um, going to interview. But um, through going to conferences and through um, just some of my academic career, I know people in a lot of different areas. So I always met someone there in a place or had somebody meet, meet me there. And um, 
So all that to say that I had a good, uh, you know, more than my fair share of options in terms of where I wanted to go um, to, to get a job. The only place that offered me a um, joint appointment in the law school and the psychology department was the University of Arizona. The University of Arizona has a long history of um, combining uh, law and psychology, and quite frankly, it had never occurred to me to, to um, even want to have a joint appointment. Uh, it was something they came to me with and said, you know, hey, um, we have a tradition of doing this. Would you be interested in doing this? And um, at first I was like, no. Uh, it's, kind of, it's kind of like you're a glutton for punishment. There are, I've yet to meet, quite frankly, another um, tenure track, so untenured professor with a joint appointment because it is exceptionally rare. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it is difficult in the sense that you just don't look like your colleagues, no matter what. Like I'm not going to look like the average law professor and I'm just not gonna look like the average psych professor and I have to be okay with that, right? Um, so uh, yeah, I, I thought um, it was an opportunity that I wouldn't get anywhere else. There's some definite advantages. One of them is that um, I get to have a graduate student. That's something that I wouldn't have the opportunity to do if I was just a law professor at another university. And so I have a, law, uh, a graduate student with whom I get to mentor and work around certain products, and that's great. And then, as I said, the University of Arizona has a history of um, really being interested in the combination of the law and psychology. And so within that, I can kind of do whatever I want. And that was really attractive to me as well. Well, it sounds like it because you led me right to my next question about and you already answered it. But I did notice that your primary appointment was mm -hmm. at the University of uh, Arizona is law and then the secondary mm -hmm. was psychology. I'm going to share my screen one more time and, and kind of note that. On one page, yes, here you are uh, mm -hmm. under the uh, James E. Rogers College of Law. And then you're also under the College of Science under psychology as well. And so you even mentioned earlier that you're first and foremost uh, a lawyer at heart and you look at everything that way and then you kind of apply psychology a little bit more. So tell me a little bit more about some of your current work and, and past work. I looked at it already um, and while I'm doing... Um, I'm going to bring this up and, and share with the uh, audience as well while you tell me a little bit more about some of your current work that's probably published. If you can still see the screen here, it, um, it shows just a that's little... The person from the UK. Yep. Yep. And so tell me we a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> Do you really? Yeah, we have the same name, but she's in the UK. Oh, no. Um, so, okay. So what I'll say is um, that... Uh, I would say that my legal career is where I get the questions that I really want to answer and how I go about answering them is where psychology comes in. Okay. So a lot of the things that I think about and how I think about things and the questions that I really want to answer are really based upon um, my legal background. So for example, um, one of the first pa papers I worked on was on juvenile sex offenders. And it was um, basically... Um, talking about the proposed legislation at the time called SORNA, which was federal legislation that was intended to kind of standardize or nationalize things like sex offender registration. Among the things that they wanted to do was to um, standardize the process of putting juveniles on sex offender registries. And so this paper essentially was saying that 
that practice was not consistent with what we understood and know about um, the development of adolescents. Okay. So where I went with that project, though, was to start with the legislative history. So I know how to do legislative history. Not many lawyers do, but um, so I went to the congressional record. I was able to look up the hearings and for the, the legislation, the bill that ultimately um, was proposed and to show that the congressional leaders actually didn't discuss this law at all. It was like um, less than 20 minutes of discussion. And so it's kind of a, a reactionary proposal that didn't really have any basis in sort of logic or research or anything. And so um, that was sort of the basis to kind of talk about, hey, look, this was what you thought would happen. Here are all the ways that science shows us that what you think will happen with, with this legislation is actually not at all the results that you're going to end up with. And so that was my first experience of um, interacting with uh, editors, for example, with psychology journals. And the funny thing was they, um, I had cited the congressional record and they said, hey, shouldn't there be a secondary site here? And I was like, no, no, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, like, no, no, I'm good. I, I um, am able to do that. So um, I would say like everything that I do, sort of the basis, the original idea uh, um, comes from my legal background. And as I said, I tend to want to, uh, or the, the way in which I try to answer those questions is with psychology. So mo more recently with my dissertation work, what I study is um, how universities adjudicate or handle sexual misconduct cases. Mm -hmm. So I was at UVA where a number of things were going on. And um, one of the things that I did was just to take a look at the, um, the student conduct policy and kind of look, look at how the university might handle things if you report sexual misconduct on campus. Mm -hmm. And what I saw, especially you know, reading like a lawyer would, my immediate reaction was, oh, absolutely not. There's no way I would report. Like knowing this, there's no way I would ever want to report anything about um, what's uh, going on in, 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 you know, as far as sex and conference is concerned. So my next thought was, okay, well then what would make me want to report? What, what kind of things would the university need to uh, assure me of um, in order to get, make me comfortable wanting to report? And so that was really kind of the basis of the research that I've been doing for the past few years. So the idea there is that um, I basically operationalized fairness. So we have this idea of justice and fairness and um, especially in litigation, right? But the question is, what is it? How do we evaluate it? And then what ultimately does it mean for our willingness to participate in the system? And so that group of products that I'm working on basically has to do with that. What kinds of things constitute fairness in the context of how universities handle sexual misconduct cases? And then ultimately, can you change the way that students perceive fairness in ways that encourages them to want to participate in the system. Because unlike uh, uh, the basis of my work is basically like procedural justice theory. And so unlike the police though, universities and civil cases and, and courts don't have armies. They don't have ways to, to coerce you to want to do things. The only way that they're going to be able to get you to participate in the system is, is by your own willing cooperation. And, and if, you don't, if they don't have that, then the system doesn't work and people won't be held accountable. Mm -hmm. And so that is um, kind of the basis of my um, largest group of projects, but I'm starting a new group of projects with my graduate students. And um, uh, at some point I'll figure out a way to tie them all together subject matter wise, haven't figured out what that is. But uh, what we're trying to do now is um, apply social cognitive theories 
to the problem of addressing um, the lack of diversity within the legal profession. So my graduate student is particularly interested in um, uh, race and gender and diversity and, and prejudice and stereotyping. And um, certainly being at a law school and in a state like Arizona that is diverse in some ways and not diverse in others, um, we just had an interest in, okay, well, what can psychology tell us about how we might be able to increase diversity, particularly in a profession where access to justice is really important? You mentioned earlier about the uh, fairness, the idea of fairness. Um, is that, I was, one thought came to my mind is what's the most challenging part of trying to uh, get at what is fair? Um, what have you found during your research? I mean, what is fair for one region or area or within the academic field versus outside is going to be different. So what have you found in terms of what's the biggest challenge of trying to determine what is fair? Um, it's a good question. So, I mean, definitely we're talking about perceived fairness and not necessarily actual fairness, right? Those are two mm -hmm. different things. And definitely things are context-based, but procedural justice theory essentially says that we as humans kind of evaluate the fairness of um, decision-making processes by looking at the quality of the decision-making and then the quality of the treatment. So there's okay. kind of like fundamental things that we think of and they're kind of memorialized in the constitution with due process. So it's the idea, for example, that um, I should, I, uh, before the government can deprive me of life, liberty, or property, I have the right to an unbiased tribunal. Like that's part of the, the idea that I'm judging the decision makers by the extent to which they may be biased towards me or against me, right? Mm -hmm. Like I have the opportunity to be heard. Um, I have the right to an attorney. All of those things are kind of related to how you might go about trying to operationalize fairness. I wouldn't say that operationalizing fairness is the hardest part. So the kind of the idea of um, or, or the model that I look at is essentially says that um, students will be more willing to cooperate and voluntarily assist university officials when asked if they have trust and confidence in the university's ability to make decisions because they believe that the way they make decisions is fair, right? And so I really think it's actually not so much the fairness or the perceived fairness that's the hard part, it's the legitimacy, the trust okay. and confidence that we have in somebody else's ability to make decisions, particularly um, uh, because I came to looking at this issue actually shortly before it hit the news with Rolling Stone and with a lot of these kind of famous cases that kind of colored how we think about how universities handle these sorts of procedures. And so we kind of have this built-in way of thinking about whether universities are going to be fair or not fair, even if we don't know anything about the processes themselves. And so I think the hardest part is really trying to figure out how do you manipulate, how do you, how do you change somebody's perception of confidence or any ability of universities to handle these decisions. And it might even, you know, some of the ignorance may come in as well. I've never even thought about that. I, I respect the university, but I'm not sure if I really respect the process involved uh, might come into play. Uh, you mentioned that one of your grad students, it might be one of the grad students that you have listed on your uh, Walker Lab as well. And so uh, that's a good transition to talk about the Walker Lab. How did it get started? And, um, you know, what are you guys focused on there? It looks like or sounds like a lot of the uh, uh, current projects that you're working on in some of the areas are coming from the Walker Lab as well. Tell us a little bit more about the lab. That's right. So as I said, um, I really had intended to apply for um, jobs at, uh, as an academic in law schools and not in law psychology. So I actually had no idea about setting up a lab 
had um, certainly terrible at names, uh, you know, in terms of like, as far as that's concerned. But um, uh, essentially, uh, our focus is, as I said, the, we want to try to use our psychology background and uh, in order to be able to address real world legal problems. And essentially my favorite thing to do and what we kind of do um, a lot of the time is to kind of take people's underlying beliefs, kind of like the common sense notions of things and to challenge the validity of those things and actually put those to the test using experimental methods. And yeah, that's my graduate student, Ellen. And she is the one who is um, kind of driving a lot of the progress that we have going on in terms of diversity. So my next logical question here is how did you decide on who you were going to accept um, to be a part of the lab? And tell us a little bit more about that process, because we have some audience members that say, I love the labs. I want to get involved. Give me some advice on how I can actually get involved in the labs. Um, it's a good question. I would say that um, be patient, but also persistent. Uh, the number of emails, especially I think is female psychology professors. Um, I, I heard at one time that in terms of things like reporting or help seeking, people are most like students are most likely to go to female psychology professors and looking at my inbox, it certainly feels that way a lot of the time. Um, so most often what happens is somebody takes a class with me. So um, being somebody with a joint appointment, I teach both in the law school and in the psychology department. So usually what happens is somebody um, takes my class in the psychology department and they um, you know, ultimately decide did really well and say, oh, hey, you know, I'd like to work with you in your lab. Or they just email me. And um, generally speaking, I pick people who um, are persistent, who are clearly self-motivated, meaning like if I say, hey, I'm busy right now, but could you follow back up with me in a couple of weeks? And if they do it, I'm like, okay, great. Like, cause I don't, like, I can't, I kind of know what I need out of, um, people that I work with. And one of the things that I can't do is I can't chase people. Mm -hmm. I can't, um, you know, manage your time for you and, and manage mine also. So I think it really, really works well for me to be able to work with people who can kind of kind of do what they say and say what they mean and that kind of thing. The other thing I'll say is um, uh, it's okay to be honest and you should just take the chance. Like, so most people who work with me say, I have no idea. I don't know whether I want to go to law school or psychology. Great. Neither did I. Right. Like that, that's fine. And I think as long as you're willing to kind of work on what needs to be done and realize that, you know, we'll do our best to try to make it a good experience for you or one that you learn from, then um, there's pretty much no downside to reaching out and, and trying to get to know somebody like that in order to be able to work in their lab. Great advice. Great advice. Um, some of our members always ask about uh, scholarships, grants, fellowships. Um, do you have any advice for them regarding those types of funding as well as any alternative types of funding? I wish I, I could say more about that. I mean, I think that, well, a couple of things. Uh, you know, in my graduate school experience, I was coming from working for a, a law firm. So I quit a very high paying job to go be a student again, which was not easy, but that also meant that I had savings. I had um, several advantages that other people don't have. Um, and for my PhD programs, I was just given a package. So I didn't really know or have to discover that many, you know, that much about like um, alternative funding. And so that's not, a, a not, that's not something that I know really a ton about, but um, I do know that it is out there. You have to search for it and it takes, it's almost a full-time job um, applying for it. 
Yeah, I agree with you based on all my other guests and, and feedback and, and going through graduate school myself. You do have to do the uh, due diligence mm-hmm. and take all the time um, to find out because there are so many different things out there. But the other thing that comes to mind real quickly for me is uh, find out if you can become a TA or a GA or you can, you know, uh, be, a, a, you know, get involved in a fellowship other than, you know, the free money and the grants. Scholarships are great as well. Uh, and then it really depends on your area uh, that you're really interested in as well. So, well, And I will say this, because this is actually true for both law school and psychology graduate programs is, and actually getting academic jobs, tell them where else you've gotten in. Um, and, you know, like uh, I say that because people, you know, academics, we're just like everybody else, right? And schools kind of move and operate like everybody else. If somebody else has it, then you want it. Right. And so, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, if they find out that you have an offer or a package at a school that they consider to be their peer school or even a better school, then they're more likely to give you additional benefits without you even having to ask. I'm going to switch topics a little bit here and switch gears, I should say. And based on my research nationwide, the vast majority of psychology faculty are white between Mm -hmm. 70 and 88 percent. Mm-hmm. Why do you think there is such a disproportionate number of culturally diverse psychology professors in the academic field? So I can really only talk about my experience. And I will tell you, there, there's a real reason why I did not major in psychology. And I didn't even think about going to psychology graduate school. And that was that in my Psych 101 class. So I was, as I said, I went to Texas A&M undergrad. And I think at the time, there were certainly more than 40,000 students, but I think less than something like 3% of the population were African-American or Black. And what's true about Texas A&M, especially for those of us who grew up there, was Texas A&M didn't admit Black people until the 1960s and didn't admit women until the 1970s. Wow. So the vast majority of people that I, because it was a military institution before. Mm-hmm. But um, the vast majority of people that I went to college with had parents who could not have gone to um, at that school as undergraduates. And so I'm, I'm not a first generation college, but my mom went to college, my mom had a master's degree. M- neither one of my parents ever attended integrated schools, even though they were educated after the Brown versus Board of Education um, decision. And so um, I say that to me because that's kind of like, you know, it is what it is. But um, at Texas A&M in my first psychology course, Um, I was one of, I'm sure, less than a handful of Black students in a class that had probably like 150, 200 people in it. And the professor said something about how Black and Hispanic students have lower IQs and then didn't really qualify it. And at the time, I knew I had the highest grade in the class. And I was kind of like, no, thanks. I'm good. (laughs) You know, like, like, I don't like I don't need, you know, like I don't, I don't need to, I mean, you know, I think that most of my professors like me, I got good recommendations and that's kind of how I got to Columbia, but I didn't want to be in an environment where I felt like I was going to have to defend my right to be there or my intellect or to, to, to have to convince somebody that um, I'm capable of doing something that I clearly know that I'm capable of doing. And so that was my experience. It said to me, well, you know, that's not for me. I'll go do something else. Um, and, and it's a shame, really. And I, and I certainly think that the professor um, thought nothing of it because on some level that, you know, they think, well, that's a fact. But then the question is, well, what are, what's the information behind that fact? The other part of it is um, it just doesn't make a lot of money. And I think there are real good reasons why people would not choose this career. Um, mm-hmm. And being an academic in particular is not for everyone. It is. Mm-hmm. 
one that you certainly do not turn off. It is not a nine to five. I mean, as I said, um, I'm not a first generation college student, but I don't really have many other academics in my family. I actually do have a cousin that works at a medical school as a professor. But um, even with her experience, I still have relatives who ask me like, well, what time do you get off work? And I'm like, well, you know, like, that's, like that's never been my career. That's never been my life. Um, you know, like that it's, it's definitely the kind of thing that, um, it, it, most people who you interact with have no idea what your life is like or what your, um, day is like, nothing like that. And, um, it, it is, it is difficult in ways that I think it would make sense for somebody not to want to do it. But for me and for a lot of my colleagues, we wouldn't want to do anything else. I get paid to think. And to me, there's nothing better than that. There's nothing better than me getting to the privilege to um, think of whatever I want and try to figure out how to answer it. And then that's act my actual job, you know? And I think that that is a, a privilege that not everybody has the opportunity to, um, to take advantage of. And I think in many ways it's because of the money. Like I, I never had to worry about not being able to pay my bills on time or to pay my rent or, you know, even um, in graduate school, you don't get very much money as in graduate school. And it's not that um, I had enough on my own. I didn't, but I had parents who I knew were not going to let me starve or who, you know, would let me be homeless. And I think that that's an advantage a lot of people just don't have. No, great that, that was a long way to explaining particularly people who whose family members um don't know what the experience is like it, it's kind of hard to justify because it's basically like what's the next best alternative you can make a lot of money spend it you know in a shorter amount of time than or you can spend six seven years in graduate school to go make you know not very much money essentially so it, it's kind of a hard ask i think and i I'm going to bring this up again, but I liked your advice earlier. It really makes you think and reflect. What do you really want to get out of your, yeah. you know, job out of your um, occupation? What do you want to do for the rest of your life? I, I think it's fair to say, cause I was in the academic world as a teacher for a long time as well. Um, and you're exactly right. Um, being in the academic world, you're kind of in a bubble. It's mm -hmm. kind of nice to be in that bubble uh, in some ways, but it's kind of not nice because you're not as connected unless you force yourself to get out there and, and do some more research outside of the academic, uh, uh, into the real world, so to speak, as, and I, as we were talking. And I think a lot of the people um, that I see, particularly in Arizona and um, some of the, so Arizona, I would say on average is a, a less wealthy state than Illinois or Virginia or even Texas. And I would say that, um, a lot of people that I see are kind of more like my parents, meaning um, my parents had no backup. There was no backup plan. They both had lots of siblings. They grew up in, on farms. Um, and it was, you know, they, they had only themselves to depend upon in terms of figuring out how to make it work. And so their goal was really to try to make as much money as possible so that they didn't have to feel insecure about food or interfere insecure about housing or you know like the idea that they could kind of do what they wanted to with their time right and uh they never really understood me being like you know i'm good i don't need to make the six figures <laughs> you know like 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 uh, that was i mean just i said that i quit my law firm job there was an actual intervention my family really was like, what's happening? What's going on? What are you doing? You wanna, yeah, like this doesn't make any sense. Like the purpose <laughs> of college is to get a job that pays. You have a job that pays. Like 
what do you want to be a professional student? And I'm like, no, no, I got a goal. Like this is, you know, this is, this will work out. It'll be fine. So I don't want to pretend like, um, it is, it is an easy thing. It's just for me, I had this sense of this is what I'm doing. You can't really tell me that I'm not going to be able to do it. And, uh, but the advantage that I see that I had that other people don't was, you know, at the end of the day, they just were not going to let me starve. Good, good. I do want to share one thing with you. I'm going to share my screen one more time here. Maybe, maybe more than one more time. I'm not sure. <laughs> Uh, if you can see this, I did some research and I have about four or five websites. I'm not going to go through all of them. I'm just going to highlight this one. This one was actually a good website. If you can kind of read this, uh, I was interested because based on my uh, previous guests, I'm, I, it opened up my eyes to realize uh, the discrepancy um, in, in culturally diverse, not only within the academic world, but outside as psychologists as well. And you're in, you're in a new, unique situation because you have the law and psychology uh, background. And um, again, that uh, dual appointmentship at uh, um, where you're at now. So what's what's interesting about this, I'm just going to scroll down and here's kind of the highlight. Uh, it falls right within that uh, uh, range that I was saying. And then you have uh, Asians less than 10%, Hispanic, Latino, 9.3, Black or African American, 7, unknown, makes me wonder what that is. And then American Indian and, and Alaska Native. If you combine all these um, together, it's time and time again when I was looking at all this. This is about three years old, mm -hmm. but even when I looked at last year's uh, information, it didn't change that much. However, there was a slight increase in certain areas. Black actually did go up a little bit. Uh, Hispanic stayed about the same, and American Indian stayed about the same. Asian was about 10, 10 and a half, so slight, slightly up a couple of years ago. And of course, it's only as good as the information and, uh, that yeah. you look at, but the trend is still there. And so I, I guess I'm leading up to, you know, I, I want to be a proponent, an advocate for trying to get more and more people into the psychology field. So what do you think can be done to help increase these numbers? Some of them, it's just not for you. I understand that. Yeah. But for others, uh, any ideas on what can be done to help increase some numbers? So that's a good segue into the research that we're doing right now. And that is um, applying several uh, social cognitive theories that have to do with how people perceive certain high status positions. And in particular, people who on average tend to be um, in members of underrepresented groups. And the mm -hmm. idea there is that um, usually women and, and often people who are from underrepresented minority groups tend to be socialized in ways that lead them to have values that conform more to communal sorts of values, more, more things about like benefiting the community um, uh, as opposed to seeking things out that are more individualistic like um, uh, money or power or status, those types of things. And so like, kind of like I said at the very beginning, I, for whatever reason, I didn't really see um, being an academic, even though I was around them as a kid, I didn't really see that as something that was for me. And so one of the things that we're trying to do is to try to gather more information um, about how people who are currently in college and then applying or going to law school, how do they define what their values are? And then um, do, do those values reflect more agentic things? Are they saying, are they going to be saying that what I care about is status, what I care about is to make as much money as possible? Or are they trying to say, well, you know, I feel pressure to help my community. I feel pressure to, you know, be able to support my family, that kind of thing. 
and um, to really see if what we can do is try to help people, particularly underrepresented minorities, find aspects of some of these careers that are more consistent with their values. I feel like the thing that I was missing was um, I had never, um, until I was at the law firm and kind of miserable, basically, I'd never collected the idea, connected the idea that my goals and values should match how I spend my time. Mm -hmm. the, the idea that how I spend my time is really a reflection, no matter what I say, I care about, right? Like how I spend my time is really how, um, what I value and what I care about at the end of the day. And so um, I think that's true in, in the legal profession in particular, because it's one industry where there is an entire separate industry designed to help you get out of it. The, the number of career counselors, particularly in the DC area is huge. There, there are whole, there's a whole engine to kind of help lawyers get out of the profession. And what I found for me was that I didn't need to leave the profession. I need to found, find something that worked for me. And I think that the same is kind of true in psychology. There's so many different ways of using your psychology degree, but usually what we see is something that we don't want or aspects of it that we don't particularly care for and we don't want. And so I think it's really more about like asking people at younger stages, at younger ages, get them to think about what their goals and values are, and then being able to expose them to aspects of these careers that may be more in line with those values. I like all your answers. The other thing that I'd add is as a parent, I would enable my, uh, my uh, kids and future students to, hey, if you're interested in this, let me help you and uh, maybe introduce them or suggest, well, why don't you go visit or why don't you call or why don't you Zoom or why don't you talk to somebody in the field and get uh, a feel for what they do every day, what they like, dislike. It just opens up your mind a little bit more and, and makes you realize, hey, I didn't really think about that. Yeah, so my co-clerk, um, so usually in a federal clerkship, you have more than one person work for the same judge and that person is your co-clerk. My co-clerk and I are still really good friends. His name is Michael Whitlock. And um, he, I discovered when we worked together, had started writing letters to just random people when he was in high school and like got to know people who worked for the New York Times and like all of the, and I was like, you're, you're kidding me, right? <laughs> like, so I started calling them Whitlock letters. But the idea essentially is that people are always willing to talk about themselves on some level, right? Especially if you're not asking them for anything. If what you, and I, and I did this in the process of trying to figure out what I wanted to transition to. I would just say, hey, I think I might be interested in, let's say family law, for example. You know, you do family law. I really love to be able to talk to you about what the kind of pros and cons are and what I might be able to do in order to try to get more experience to try to figure out whether this is something that I should want to, you know, could do for a living essentially. So my last guest uh, was, and I might've mentioned it earlier, uh, was Native American. And he uh, proactively offered some specific advice for Native American students. Mm -hmm. I got to thinking, well, what could I ask you for if you had any specific advice? And I actually thought of two different groups. Mm -hmm. One is specific advice for those interested in combining law and psychology. Mm -hmm. And then the second group is any Black or African American students who are interested in psychology as well. So any thoughts on either one of those? Um, I guess... What's true about my trajectory is um, I tried to pay attention, but I didn't necessarily follow what everybody else was doing. And so um, to that, I kind of mean, like, listen to what your inner voice is telling you, especially for people, like I said, um, you know, my parents were pretty supportive with, with the idea of education. A lot of people's parents aren't just because it, it is it is a sacrifice. You are not making as much money as you could be making if you were, you know, uh, not in graduate school. But um, if this is something that you want to do, uh, 
basically don't let anybody tell you anything different. And um, the other part of it is I, I especially as um, somebody who's black, I can't imagine an environment where you aren't going to run into things like mic microaggressions and um, things that are gonna be difficult. And so for me, what matters for me is that I know why I'm here and I know what I wanna get out of it. And I have figured out ways that um, I have a level of autonomy that academia provides that I don't necessarily always have to care about what's going on over there. It's not to say that it doesn't impact my life. I think that um, certainly my parents they, as I said, were, my dad was the first black detective and for a long time, the only black detective in our, um, in that department. My mom was a county extension agency, a county extension agent who was the head of 4-H in our county and certainly the only black woman and first black woman to do that. I think that their mindset was very much like, okay, we'll just be better than everybody else. And um, you hear that a lot. And I think that there is some truth to that, but I think that what is difficult to overcome is the idea of how much cognitive space you have to take up with people who are not familiar with um, your culture or how you operate or what's good for you, essentially. But um, I, I think that that's something that you kind of have to deal with no matter what the career is. And so I feel like it's about those other aspects of how you spend their day that are really important to kind of help you overcome those potentially negative aspects of what um, maybe involved in your career and then to try to get as many people, um, as you can to kind of join you along the way. Mm -hmm. No, very good advice. The other thing I know that you mentioned earlier, that one professor who was, I, I suspect a little older, mm -hmm. uh, thinking that it was factual with, uh, mm -hmm. dealing with the IQ stuff. I think one of the things that is changing since I was in graduate school is, um, the, the nation as a whole in the United States ha have made some um, progress in terms of accepting, recognizing, and, and becoming advocates for uh, culturally diverse and, and, and helping uh, people throughout many different fields. I'm not even talking about psychology, but the other sure. thing that I'm leading up to is the real fact of the older professors are getting closer to retirement mm -hmm. are getting replaced by the younger ones. And, uh, you're getting the fresh views, the fresh, uh, uh values into the system. And I think that's more beneficial as well. Yeah. But I would say that. So, um, one thing that I think has kind of, um, really helped me a lot, not just in my career, but in my life is believe it or not. So I, um, attended this program with the George Bush school, not H.W. Uh, Bush, not W. Um, George H.W. Bush was the head of the CIA at one time. Mm -hmm. And um, he had kind of like a, this cultural program at Texas A&M that I participated in. One of the things that we did that was kind of, um, kind of their version of diversity training, which I thought was very good, was um, via the anthropology department. And they essentially made up a culture and uh, you know, presented this culture to us in a big room. And we had to figure it out. And we had to try to like interact with people with whom we did not speak the language and try to interpret what we thought the behavior was of these people who were doing things that were foreign to us were kind of, some things were kind of like what we thought they would be, but other things weren't. And the whole point of the exercise was to help us understand that what we thought, the lens that we were looking through was just not the way that other people would be able to see things, right? Number one. And then number two was that you are absolutely going to make mistakes and you're going to be wrong. How do you try to remedy that and to make apologies for it as quickly as possible? Because if you're not willing to be wrong, then you're not going to grow at the end of the day. 
and it, and it does feel very um, scary and it does feel very um, vulnerable, but I feel like that is one thing that has kind of uh, helped me the most in terms of not just working with um, people who are American and white, but just everybody who doesn't look like me or doesn't eat the food that I do. It's more like, you know what, I'm going to try the food. I, I don't know what it is. I can't pronounce it. doesn't matter. You know, like, am I, am I going to, I feel like what the, the thing that distinguishes a lot of people who are more successful in terms of inner people who are not themselves is just the willingness to put themselves in a position where they're the only person. That's certainly more common of people who are, you know, in minority groups, but how many, um, particularly white Americans purposefully put themselves in positions where they are the minority, not very many. And not only that, but uh, those who don't travel outside the United States yes. um, really are seeing, you know, life with blinders on. Uh, oh, absolutely. I and I will tell you the biggest eye opener for me is particularly as a Texan. So like both, I'm, I'm like a fourth or fifth generation Texan, depending on how you calculate it, right? And everybody <laughs> in Texas knows you have to take Texas history. So I studied abroad in Mexico and took Mexican history. And I was like, huh, <laughs> you know, like it's literally like to, to be, to have grown up in a place where you have monuments for the exact same wars, but to go right. see the other side of right. the war, like to see like the actual other side. Oh, you know, like we stole their land. Yep. That sounds about right. You know, like it is literally the same information told from a different way. I thought it was very eye opening, and it's, and it was kind of, like I said, you have to consider the fact that you could be wrong and you're certainly wrong about somebody else's culture. And I think that you at least what I try to tell my students is there is such thing as true ignorance. There can be true ignorance. And the thing is, you just have to figure out how to quickly overcome it. And I think we have to just be okay with each other's ignorance. You can't stay in it, right? You can't, you can't feel like that's a comfortable position, but if you don't have exposure and you don't know, you don't know. And that has to be okay on some level. I'm going to share one quick story and I only have a couple uh, questions left. I appreciate the time. One quick story related to going down to Mexico and, and studying uh, their history. Mm -hmm. I recently went over to uh, Vietnam and mm -hmm. I um, visited a site that actually uh, talked about the Vietnam War from mm -hmm. their perspective. I was the only white person there. I was the only tall. I'm six foot four. Uh, so I not only literally stood out, but, you know, in terms of my color, but uh, we saw this video and we saw the history and there were certain points during the video where the uh, native uh, uh, Vietnamese would turn around and try to look at my reaction to what I was seeing yeah. to see if I was getting mad, upset. I was just sitting there watching. And then we, we talked afterwards about it from my perspective and their perspective. And uh, that's how you actually go outside of your comfort zone and learn a little bit more and become, uh, um, you know, a little bit more down to earth and, and you open up your eyes. And, and I had a, I had an advisor in my graduate school who would always say, you should always push back the frontiers of ignorance. Mm -hmm. And if you think about that for a second, that makes a total sense. Get out of your comfort zone. And I, I just wanted to share that because as soon as you said, um, shared your story, I thought of that exactly right away. So, yeah, and I think that's really what it's about getting outside of your comfort zone. Like if you, if you have, if you just lived in the idea that everything around you feels familiar and comfortable, you're probably not doing it right. Right. Definitely. Now, the last few questions are kind of fun questions I ask all my guests. So the first one is, what is your favorite term, principle, or theory, and why? Um, well, I really want to talk about my favorite curse word, but I'm not going to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I would say um, my favorite kind of uh, 
term slash theory is really, you know, kind of procedural justice theory, but really kind of this idea of legitimacy and trust and confidence. I kind of am really interested and kind of obsessed with the idea that on some level, you have to be able to convince people that they can trust you. And um, what are the kinds of things that you can do, say, how can you operate in ways that are honest and true and transparent, but in, in ways that can actually, you know, build somebody's ability to be able to trust you. And especially in this environment, I think about it a lot in the news when people talk about the Supreme Court and like stacking the Supreme Court or, you know, who appointed the Supreme Court, really what it boils down to is, do you believe this person is going to be fair? Do you believe this person is going to, to, to listen to both sides and to, to make a, a, a decision to the best of their ability? Is, there, is the quality of their decision-making um, good? And are they biased in any way? And I think we hear people talking about that a lot, but not talking about like, well, how do you change that? What, is, what does something look like that you could sort of signal and demonstrate that you are somebody who is making an effort to try to be legitimate? And it all, com and it all comes down to perception as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, yeah, I think we've seen what we've seen is basically like not very many efforts being made to change perceptions or perceptions for certain groups of people and not others. Mm -hmm. I agree. What is something new that you have learned recently? I don't know. I was thinking about this. Usually um, the new thing for me has to do with food, <laughs> you know, like trying new foods or something <laughs> like that. And, um, I, you know, I, I guess it would be one thing that is true about me is I will try it because just because I feel like people work hard and, um, you know, if they're going to offer it to me, then I'm going to take it. And I feel like, uh, probably the new thing is I've just tried a lot of different types of Chinese food. And then here we have, um, lots of, uh, Mexican restaurants and reservations. So I like, you know, Indian fried bread, like those types of things I think are new and different. And I like that a lot. Good. Good. If you had the time and money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do? So I tend to think about that anyway. Like I used to say things like, um, if I win the lottery, I'll get a PhD in psychology. Um, <laughs> and so I did that. So probably what I would do is uh, just fund a lot of work so that we don't have to spend all of our time applying for grants and things like that. But other than that, um, I still like the new and the different. I still like the different experiences. And so I kind of like the idea of just picking a place on the map and trying it out and, and seeing what happens. So I probably do something like that. Um, there was one last question. Is there anything else that you would like to discuss or bring up in this podcast? No, I mean, I, I um, wish people good luck. I think that um, I hope that they have um, taken what people say in this podcast to heart, but not as if it is the defining feature of their own lives. We all have our own experiences, right? And we can only tell you from our perspectives. And so, um, but I hope you can take from it what is beneficial to you and leave the rest behind. Tammy, I really appreciate your time and willingness to share your thoughts and your experiences. Um, thanks again for taking the time. I really enjoyed our discussion. Uh, I'm going to go back and, and actually, uh, I transcribe all these as well. And so I'm, I'm going to relive this whole thing again. Um, but uh, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to uh, share your life and your academic journey. Thank you. My pleasure. All righty. Have a good night.
Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.